We're going to be in Matthew chapter 20 this morning. Matthew 20, verses 20 through 28. Matthew 20, 20 to 28. I am glad that you made it here this morning. Uh, Hopefully when you were coming to church, the rain was not quite as bad yet as it had been projected to be. Uh, We're going to be, as I said, Matthew 20. Uh, I have mentioned to some of y'all before, I think, that when I was going into my senior year in college, I worked that summer at a family camp in upstate New York, and I was hired onto the staff to uh, be a musician, actually. I was on the music staff. Uh, Every weekend, our staff, about 40 of us on the music staff, would put together concerts for the guests. And so these were full orchestral concerts with wind instruments and strings and uh, vocalists and keyboardists and the whole deal. And so uh, I was hired on staff at the time. I was into music and so I played saxophone and piano and I sang. And uh, it was a great experience. At least that part of the job was fantastic. Uh, The other half of my job, though, was to wait tables in the dining hall. Uh, Somebody who conceived this idea of having musicians come apparently felt that we needed to balance out the glory of being on the stage uh, with being in the dining hall pretty much the rest of our time. So it hadn't really fully sunk into me before I went to the camp that summer that although I would be spending a lot of my time rehearsing and performing, I would also be spending a lot of my time carrying trays and cleaning up for people's toddlers. And uh, the juxtaposition of those two jobs throughout the summer kind of produced something interesting in my heart. Uh, Because on Friday and Saturday, after we had rehearsed all week, we did a different set of songs every single week. Uh, We'd go in and we would perform as a group for a thousand to twelve hundred people who would sometimes give us standing ovations and literally we would be in this spotlight and then we would walk from the dining hall uh, from the uh, concert hall down to the dining hall where we would carry trays right and most of the guests were nice to us but these were the same people who had just been applauding us and we were now serving their food and their drinks right some of them weren't nice some of them were demanding Some of them made terrible messes, right? Some of them had small children that dropped crumbs all over the floor. And as the summer went on, I began to find that there was something in my heart uh, that, that resented being asked to serve like that when, hey, I'm a musician, right? I play the saxophone. I play the keyboard. I am, I was older than a lot of the staff. I was 21 years old, right? I was beyond this. I had come all the way from Texas to work in New York. Right? When, I, when I list them all now, it doesn't sound as impressive as it did in my head when I was 21. Right? But I was convinced at times that this was beneath me and there was that little voice inside of me that said, you're better than this. You don't deserve to be carrying people's food around. You deserve to be in that spotlight. Right? It's not the first time or the last time in my life, by the way, that I have heard that little voice in my head. Anybody who's ever worked a service job of any kind has heard that voice. Right? Anybody who ever has believed that they deserve more out of life than life has given them has heard that voice. 
Right? Just this morning, I had to wrestle that voice. When I woke up and I thought this, I thought, it's going to be raining outside and nobody's going to come. And I have to preach on humility to an empty room. Right? And my heart begins to go, I, I'm greater than this. Now, I don't know you all in detail, but I'm just going to go out on a limb and guess that you have that little voice too. I'm just going to guess that, that somewhere in your heart and mind is a little voice that says, you know what, this is what I deserve. This is how I deserve to be treated. And you bristle when you're not treated like you deserve. Right? A lot of you in this room, you are important people in this community, right? Uh, you, you own businesses or you are a professional where people respect you. You go to work and you issue commands, right? And people, theoretically, they obey. And, and, and we, we begin to expect that kind of treatment throughout our life. Well, the, the question is, how do we respond when we're not treated as we expect to be treated, right? When, when a client or somebody at the office disrespects you or doesn't do what you say, does that little voice well up in your heart and mind? I'm better than this. Right? When your career doesn't take the unbroken trajectory towards success and fame and riches that you imagined it would when you were 21, do you hear that little voice? Right? Maybe that you're a highly educated, highly competent individual and now you're a stay-at-home parent and the primary thing you do is stuff like cleaning crumbly goldfish from underneath car seats. And your children do not applaud, do they? They don't care about your education. And so day after day after day, all of us wrestle that internal voice of pride. Right? It's in all of us. It's an ancient voice that goes all the way back to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Right? What was the, the first lie, really, that the serpent told to Adam and Eve? Well, God doesn't want what's best for you, and God has given you this regulation. Don't eat from this one tree. Right? Why is God giving you this regulation? Because he knows that if you eat from that tree, what's going to happen? You're going to be really great. You're going to be like God. You want to be like God, don't you? Why is God giving the orders and you're having to submit? Adam and Eve, take from the fruit and you will find you can be great. And the lie of the enemy was, you can be great by usurping the authority of God in your life. And they listened. And that pride took root and it led to sin, which led to death, right? It's nothing new. Pride is not a problem just on Twitter. It has been a problem for thousands of years. As we look at Matthew 20 this morning, we're going to see how the disciples of Jesus had to wrestle with this problem of pride. Because like us, they were human beings with sinful tendencies and a sinful nature. And so they were also prideful men. And we, we have this story in Matthew 20 where two of the disciples in particular sort of start the discussion, but they start a discussion of we want to be at the top of the heap. Jesus, when you come into your kingdom, we want to be at the top. Put one of us on your right, put one of us on your left, make us the rulers right next to you to rule the world over all these other 10 guys and everybody else, right? And they traverse the path 
of pride. And what we're going to see is Jesus will correct their perceptions about greatness. Right? Jesus, interestingly, is not going to tell them, you know what, that desire to be significant is evil or wrong. Instead, Jesus is going to say, look, greatness is not what you think it is. He will actually turn our concept of greatness upside down and say that in the kingdom of God, it's the first who will be last and the last who will be first. It's actually the person who climbs down the ladder in order to serve whom God will elevate to positions of authority and influence in his kingdom. Right? The way the world thinks about greatness is not the way God thinks about greatness, right? Because greatness in God's kingdom is ultimately defined by how closely we reflect the character and the heart of Jesus Christ. And Jesus will say, just as he came to serve, so we are called to serve. Just as he came to give his life for his people, we are called day by day to die to self for God's people that he made and loves. All right, that's Matthew chapter 20. Look with me at Matthew 20. We're going to start in verse 20. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came to Jesus with her sons, bowing down and making a request of him. And he said to her, what do you wish? She said to him, command that in your kingdom, these two sons of mine may sit one on your right and one on your left. All right, the first thing that we see here in Matthew 20 is this. We we all want greatness, all right? We all want greatness. James and John are the sons of Zebedee. And to set the stage for you, uh, they they send their mom to make a request of Jesus. Now, uh, it's unclear why they didn't make the request on their own. Now, there are a few possible reasons. Some people actually have put some evidence together from the New Testament and actually said James and John might be Jesus' cousins on his mother's side, right? That's a possibility. And so this, their mom would be Jesus' aunt, right? Aunt Salome. And so they say, look, mom, you go talk to Jesus because how could a nephew turn down a request from his aunt? Now, we don't know that for sure, It's also just possible they said, look, we want to put our best foot forward. And mom is our best foot. So they send their mom to Jesus and she kneels down as if to make a request from a king. And Jesus says, what is it you want? And she says, look, when you come in your kingdom, I want you to put one of my boys on your right and one of my boys on your left. Right? These were the preeminent positions of honor in any kingdom. If you got to sit on the right, that was position number one. If you were on the left, that was position number two. And she says, I want my boys to have those two positions. Now, what's great about this, actually, that we often miss is that James and John really believed that Jesus had a coming kingdom. Right? James and John actually believe that Jesus is the Messiah who's going to rule the world. And so they see their opening, right? They say, Jesus is going to rule the world. And because of that, we want to be right there ruling with him. As we said, James and John really are not any different from all of us, right? How, How many of us in this room have dreamed of being powerful, famous, wealthy, in charge? How many of you in this room over the course of the last year have thought, I could run this country better than any of the other 16 people who ran for president? Right? It's in all of us. 
I ran across a survey from a, a website about uh, fathering, about parenting. This is from 2015. And they surveyed hundreds of kids and they asked them, what do you want to be when you grow up? And, and they asked kids ranging all the way from three up to like 18. Uh, in the youngest age group, the three to four-year-olds, the most popular thing they want to be when they grow up is actually a superhero. Uh, they want to be Superman or Spider-Man or whatever. And it makes sense, right? Superheroes are powerful. They have supernatural powers and they can control any situation. Now it's interesting, flash forward about eight to 10 years, those who were 10 years old and older, the most popular answer for what they wanted to be was a professional athlete, right? An answer that's actually not that much different from superhero when you think about it. We all want to be something significant. Right? And the reason for that is because greatness is encoded into our DNA. You and I were made to reflect the glory of God because we are made in the image of God. Right? And so there's an element in our desire to be great that is correct and right. We want to reflect God's glory. We want to be a part of God's world in a significant way because he made us for significance. The problem is that James and John and you and I understand significance and greatness in ways that are inconsistent with God's conception. See, God's conception of greatness in his world is to be connected to him, to reflect him. What you and I actually want to do is we want to climb up the ladder and sit above him and be in charge. Right? And Jesus recognizes this tendency within James and John. All of us want to be great. But Jesus will tell them this throughout the rest of the passage. Greatness is not what we think it is. Right? Greatness is not what we think it is. Look with me starting in verse 22. Jesus answered, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am about to drink? They said to him, we are able. He said to them, my cup you shall drink. The first thing Jesus points out is this. True greatness in the kingdom of God requires suffering. Right? When Jesus is talking about the cup he's going to drink, it's very clear he's talking about his coming death. This imagery of drinking the cup of God's wrath permeates the Old Testament. Right, just a few chapters later, in Matthew 26, Jesus would kneel down in the Garden of Gethsemane and say what? Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. But not as I will, but as you will. Right? Jesus, by the way, has just finished talking about his own death. Look at, back at Matthew 20, starting in verse 18. Jesus had pulled them aside. He says this, Behold, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and will hand him over to the Gentiles to mock and scourge and crucify him, and on the third day he will be raised up. Here's an interesting irony about the Gospels. Every time the disciples start arguing about who's going to be the greatest, it is immediately after Jesus talks about his death. Right, immediately after. So Jesus says, I'm going to be humbled, crucified, mocked, scourged, and then I will rise again. And the disciples get together and they go, who's going to be in charge when he rises again? 
And what they do is they say, we want the glory of Christ's resurrection and kingdom. We do not want the cross that comes before it, right? They've missed the point. And Jesus says, look, you want to be great. You don't know what greatness is. Greatness passes through this deep valley of suffering and pain. The Son of Man is about to be killed for the sins of the world. And he says, James and John, are you able to drink that cup? You want to be great in God's kingdom. There is no path to greatness that doesn't pass through the valley of suffering. And yet we want to bypass it. All right, true greatness requires suffering. I wonder how many of us, uh, when we were kids would sit and dream about what it would be like to be a grown-up. Right? I know I did. Uh, because as a child, from my perspective, here's what I thought grown-ups did. I thought they simply sat in a chair and told the children what to do. Right? Grown-ups had all authority and power, didn't they? I mean, how many times did you think, when I'm a grown-up, I will be able to decide where I go When I go there, what I do with my time and my energy, I will be able to issue orders to the small people when I'm a grown-up, right? But but then we would always qualify, but but I I will not. I will be a nice mommy or daddy, And we had these dreams. Well, now that you are a grown-up, how much has the reality corresponded with your dreams, right? You realize now that the cup you have to drink as an adult, don't you? You don't get to go wherever you want to go, whenever you want to go there. You don't have unlimited freedom and all power in the universe, do you? Instead, you have responsibility and bills. What we think is power and greatness. Jesus says, you don't understand. Yes, Jesus will reign over God's kingdom, but first he has to go to the cross. Oswald Sanders, in his book, Spiritual Leadership, says, if the disciples figured to learn about leadership on the fast track and with appropriate perks and bonuses, Jesus soon disillusioned them. He says, can you drink this cup? James and John, by the way, would drink the cup that Jesus drank. Jesus says that, you will drink my cup. James, we know, was the first of the apostles to be martyred in the book of Acts. Herod cut off his head for his testimony of Jesus Christ, right? John himself died in exile on the Isle of Patmos, isolated from human community and imprisoned away from society. Jesus says, you will pass through suffering if you want to be great. I don't know how many of you know the name Amy Carmichael. She was a missionary from England to India in the uh, early part, mostly of the 20th century, late 19th century. uh, Yeah, late 19th century, early 20th century. She spent about 50 years in India. The last two decades of her life, she was mostly bedridden because she was injured. And yet she still continued to minister. She spent her life uh, single, at times lonely, separated from her culture where she grew up. And she had a deep impact for the gospel. And she wrote a poem. I want to read this to you this morning about this idea of greatness and suffering. It's called, Hast Thou No Scar? It begins, Hast Thou No Scar? No hidden scar on foot or side or hand. 
I hear thee sung as mighty in the land. I hear them hail your bright ascendant star. Hast thou no scar? Hast thou no wound? Yet I was wounded by the archers, spent, lean me against the tree to die, and rent by ravening beasts that compassed me, I swooned. Hast thou no wound? No wound, no scar? Yet as the master shall the servant be, and pierced are the feet that follow me. But thine are whole. Can he have followed far who has no wound, nor scar? And Jesus says there's no path to greatness that doesn't walk the valley of suffering. James chapter 1. James says, Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial. For once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. God will honor those who suffer for the sake of his gospel and his kingdom. Jesus says, you want to be great in the kingdom of God. Can you drink my cup? And now, now James and John go, yeah, sure, we got this. We can drink the cup. And Jesus says, you will drink the cup. But then he goes on. Verse 23, my cup you shall drink, but to sit on my right and on my left, this is not mine to give but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. The second thing Jesus says, not only does true greatness require suffering, true greatness comes from God. Jesus says that on his right and on his left will be the people he chooses. Right? You can't manipulate your way to greatness in God's kingdom. You can't push and shove your way to greatness in God's kingdom. Uh, We can push and shove our ways generally to greatness in this world, can't we? We could manipulate our way to success. I don't know about you. At times, I've been tempted to do that, manipulate my way to success and visibility. Uh, When I was uh, early on in college ministry as the college pastor at this church, I, I felt pressure inside. Nobody was putting pressure on me. I felt this internal pressure to get people to come, right, to attract attention and get people there. And so with college students, I I recognized that one way I could get people to come was if I talked about certain topics that I knew they were interested in, dating and sex, right? I knew if we did big series on that topic that a lot of people would come in the door, right? And we have to talk about that topic. But what I found was that in doing those topics, my motives often were to get people in the door, right? What about Revelation and the end times? What about dating and sex in Revelation and the end times, right? You combine them together and you've got a winner, right? And so I was so tempted to try to manipulate what was happening, Right? And, that, and that's not exclusive, I don't think. I'm just, again, going to go out on a limb and say, I don't think that's exclusive to me. My guess is that in your own place of business, in your own career, in your own world, you are tempted at times to manipulate your way to success. Right? Maybe I'll just spend a little bit of extra time with the right people in this community and at my office and subtly shun the wrong people who might not advance my path. Maybe I'll be a little bit more aggressive and unkind than I ought to be in order to grow my kingdom. To push others to do what I want them to do because it will elevate me above others 
in my sphere of influence. And Jesus says, look, greatness comes from God through patiently waiting and through being willing to lower ourselves for the sake of his glory. Only God knows the heart, right? And so God is the one that chooses sometimes unlikely people to be great for his purposes. Think about King David. King David, by all earthly standards, was the least likely person you would have chosen to be king. The youngest of seven boys, a shepherd out in the field, not particularly tall like Saul was. But God sees his heart. And God says, this man of humility, this man who, although he sins, is willing to repent and humble himself under the hand of God. God exalts him. As I look at Matthew chapter 20, I can't help but come away with the impression that in the kingdom of God, when Jesus returns, we're going to be surprised at who takes the positions of honor. We don't know because only God sees the heart. And God says, James and John, you wait on God to exalt you in his time. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God and he, he will lift you up. That temptation to manipulate our way to greatness. It's written deeply into our sin nature. It's so hard to push it away from our minds and hearts. Say, God, I'll trust you. About two months ago, I was at an event where I had the privilege of going backstage with a number of other pastors and there were some well-known speakers and musicians and all these people milling around in this backstage area. And as I walked back there, I had an interesting moment where I was walking toward a table and I looked over on my right and here was a a friend of mine, another fellow pastor, nobody really well-known in worldly terms, right? just a, a friend of mine. And he looked up as if to greet me. And then I looked over to my left and I saw another friend of mine. And this other friend of mine was talking to somebody famous. A famous musician. right? And so I'm standing between these two people. And I have to tell you in my flesh what I wanted to do. Was gravitate toward the bigwig. Why? Maybe I can get a selfie with him. Post it. On social media, and everybody will know he's my friend, right? And all of a sudden, I will have this clout. Well, he's not really my friend, right? I've never met him before. Or I could go talk to this friend, right? And and in my heart, for just just a couple of seconds, I, I found myself wrestling down that need to manipulate my way to significance. My friend over here was standing, hand out, so I walked over here. I talked to him for a moment. Now, I will tell you, he moved on, and then I went over here. Because it's not that this individual, this famous individual, is a bad person to talk to, right? But he's a human being just like this man. God says, James and John, you cannot manipulate your way to greatness in God's kingdom. Or maybe you can in the eyes of the world. But true greatness comes from God 
to those that God bestows it on in his timing and in his way. And then as we move to the last part of the passage, we see that true greatness is for servants. Look at verses 24 to 28. And hearing this, the ten became indignant with the two brothers. All of a sudden we find uh, this struggle is not just in James and John, it's in all of them, right? The ten are indignant, not because uh, they're going, you know, James and John, you really need to be more spiritual about this. They're indignant because uh, they have been outdone. They've been outmanipulated. The ten are indignant with the two brothers, but Jesus called them to himself. Guys, come here. He says, look, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their great men exercise authority over them. It's not this way among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. Whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. And to give his life a ransom for many. Jesus says, look, the way of the Gentiles, literally the way of the nations is that the powerful men lord it over those who are less powerful. Every culture in the world operates that way. Those in power seek to increase their power. Those who are out of power try to find ways to get into power. And Jesus says, that's the way of the nations, but not so among you. He says, if you want to be great, you need to become a servant. If you want to have authority and greatness in the kingdom of God, you become, he says, a slave, a bond slave. This word doulos, this is a common Greek word in the New Testament. One of the more common Greek words, in fact, that we find in the New Testament. But probably the place that you would recognize it most readily is in Philippians chapter 2, verse 7. Jesus emptied himself, taking the form of a doulos, bond servant. Jesus himself did exactly what he tells his disciples to do. If you want to be great, you climb down the ladder and you serve. And none of us like to be treated like servants. Right? Now, now, sometimes we may like to serve, right? We want to serve, but on our own terms. We don't want to be treated like servants, right? Uh, I worked at a grocery store when I was in high school, and I was a checker, and I was a bagger, and one day I remember this man came through the line, and he said, now now son, this is important to me, make sure that you do not put my bread underneath any other items, Right? I, I said, yes, sir, and, and of course, in my mind, even right then, my pride begins to well up, and I thought, I'm not a, I'm not a moron, right? I know that I should not put your bread underneath all your heavy items, right? But I said, okay, yes, sir, and uh, we bagged up his stuff, and, and I don't know how it happened, but uh, <laughs> of all the people who came through that day, it so happened that his bread did get smashed. I don't know if it happened uh, in someone else's hands. Uh, I'm going to choose to believe that it was not me that made the mistake. All I know is about 20 minutes later, he was back in the store. He had driven all the way home and he pulled out the bread 
And he decided that this crisis was of such a magnitude that he had to get in the car and drive back to the store with the offending bag where he placed it on the counter. And he said, son, you knew this moment was coming, didn't you? And I thought in my head, how could anybody know this was coming? Like what kind of insane psychopath drives back to the store to chew out the bagger? I'm making $4.07 an hour. Let me be. Right? He said, I told you, I told you not to let my bread get smashed. And here it is, it's smashed. I can't believe it. Right? And he was intentionally trying to make me feel small. But in my heart and mind, I remember that thought of, I'm so much better than this. I don't deserve this. And, and you know, really, I was right. I didn't deserve that. It's a loaf of bread. We can get him another one. The store is filled with them. But see, I didn't want to be treated like a servant. I had an expectation. This is how I deserve to be treated. And you have violated what I deserve. Again, going out on a limb, my guess is you felt like that. We like to serve, but often when it suits our interests, when we can maintain our dignity, when we're treated as we feel we ought to be treated. And Jesus says, no, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. If anybody did not deserve the disrespect that was heaped upon him, it was Jesus Christ who was wounded for our transgressions, who died and rose again so we could have life. Jesus Christ, who is equal to God, but he emptied himself. He took on the form of a bondservant and he humbled himself to the point of death. And Philippians says, even death on a cross, the most shameful death, a Jewish man in the first century could undergo. Jesus says, you want to be great. This is the path to greatness. Through service. Through humility. Through setting aside your rights. It's so hard. Because none of us likes to be treated as a servant. And again, you may be accustomed to being treated well in most spheres of your life. But my guess is there are times where you feel disrespected. Maybe you're respected at work and then you go home and you feel disrespected by a spouse, by your kids. Maybe you used to be respected at work and now you stay at home with the kids and feel disrespected. Maybe it is you feel respected at your home, but as you go into your neighborhood, you look and feel disrespected by your neighbors or by your family. Many of us at times have thought, you know what, I'm a respected, competent person throughout most of my life, but when I go home for Christmas, nobody else agrees with me. And so we bristle because we feel we deserve more than we're getting. And Jesus says the path to greatness 
is through service. Andrew Murray, in his powerful book, Humility, one of the most life-transforming books I've read, says this, here is the path to the higher life, down, lower down. Just as water always seeks and fills the lowest place, so the moment God finds men abased and empty, his glory and power flow in to exalt and to bless. The pathway to greatness in his kingdom passes through suffering, requires patience and trust in God, and is given to those who serve with a heart to reflect the character of Jesus Christ and display it to the world because we are made for significance, but our significance is a reflected glory to represent Jesus Christ who died for our sin and rose again so we might have life. And so the question for us this week is, are we willing to be humble servants for the sake of greatness in God's kingdom? Are we willing to reflect Jesus Christ? This requires a transformation of our hearts that can only come through the Spirit of God because pride is so deeply written into our sinful nature. And so day after day, we ask the Spirit of God to transform us. I want to give an exercise just this week for you to to try. Find a way you can serve somebody who needs your service, but do it in secret. Find a way you can serve where nobody will find out, where nobody is watching, and don't provide subtle clues. Like if you clean up all the dishes for your family and they come home later, don't sit there and say, anybody notice anything? I was reminded this week as I was, as I was looking at this that uh, not too long ago, I had a, a neighbor who was struggling in a variety of ways, and so he had not mowed his lawn. And so partly out of benevolence and partly out of selfish interest, I'll admit, I went over and mowed his lawn, right? And I didn't tell him I was going to do it, and I didn't tell him later. But I, I will say that part of my heart, even as I was doing it, was thinking this. I kind of hope somebody sees me doing this. Right? Maybe, maybe like a news crew will see me. Like they'll come over and be like, why are you mowing his lawn? You are such a selfless servant. Right? And I'd say, well, you know, I'm, I, I, I love Jesus and that's why I'm doing this. Is this going to be on at six o'clock or five? When will this be on? Right? And so you begin to have those thoughts. Here's, here's what I want us to do is begin the process of saying, I'm going to set those thoughts aside and I want to serve in secret when nobody will notice when nobody will applaud me, when nobody else cares. To reflect the character of Jesus Christ. Uh, We're going to celebrate communion as we close this morning. And communion is a great opportunity for us to reflect upon the selfless sacrifice of Jesus. That he gave his life so we can live. If you don't know Jesus Christ this morning, uh, go ahead and let the elements pass by you. 
and reflect on the reality instead of what Jesus has done for you and and reflect on whether this is the morning that God might be moving in your heart to trust in him for eternal life because he died for all your sin and he rose again. If you know Jesus Christ, you're welcome to participate with us in communion, whether you're a member here or not. And as we do, we want to reflect upon the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on our behalf who humbled himself to the point of death. So as the elements come forward, let's spend a few moments reflecting on Jesus Christ.